today on Ag News Daily. Well, that's a great question. And because I have a lot of publicly traded companies, I, I try not to make forward looking statements. But I'll tell you what I hear and what I've heard from a lot of our uh, a lot of our member companies is that they're they're seeing the fundamentals of this current market to be uh, a long a longer term environment. Welcome back, listeners, to a Thursday report of Ag News Daily. This is Tanner Winterhoff alongside Delaney Howe. Welcome back, Delaney. Thank you. Good to be back, I suppose. Although Washington, D.C. had much nicer weather, maybe not so nice people, Tanner. (laughs) Iowa nice. We know that cliche very, very well. And uh, I don't know, I was getting kind of comfortable working with Cassidy and uh, Miss Spunk and unique perspective that she brings. So, um, I still said welcome back. I wasn't going to be mean about it. Appreciate it. That's nice of you, I guess. <laughs> we we kind of took over your show. Just That's so okay. Know. I'm happy to take a little break. Although I didn't really get much of a break because spent the last three days talking to legislators, getting to ask them different questions. And we're going to try to figure out how, the best way to play all of this content, Tanner, because we talked to probably... 15 or 20 different senators, congressmen, and then just people involved in the ag and trade space, and certainly a lot of issues to digest. Well, I'm excited to see what kind of content you brought back, but what's in the news today? Well, Tanner, I've got to be honest, I've uh, only paid attention to some headlines while I've been out, so I've been rereading the news this morning to catch myself back up to speed. But one story that I think we really ought to take a look at here and was a headline that came out, I believe, after you guys recorded the podcast yesterday, was the announcement that India is having a severe issue with their wheat crop this year, which just adds to the list of other countries that are continuing to have issues. I think you guys played my conversation with the U.S. Wheat Associates yesterday. That was a really good one. The gentleman I spoke to really knew, Vince knew how to put things in perspective, But this headline just adds to that frustration. India has had basically five years of record wheat crops, Tanner, here the last couple of years. And they were expecting another record wheat crop here in 2022, back in February. But then in March, they received the hottest March in 122 years. And those heat waves really dented wheat yields in some very key growing areas. And that certainly had the wheat markets excited yesterday. But their ag ministry said that they are estimating cuts to the 2022 production down to 105 million metric tons, which is compared to the 111 million metric tons the month prior. So not only are they going to see a drop in production, and that by all estimates is still a very conservative estimate, private estimates actually have wheat sub 100 million metric tons. But the other key component of that, Tanner, is as you think back to mid-February when we started to see the Russia-Ukraine invasion happen, India was recording some all-time high exports because they were able to absorb some new business because of the issues going on there. So not only are we going to see a loss of production, but now India is likely going to limit exports of wheat pretty substantially to make sure that they can feed their own people first. Wow. That is definitely something we wanted to report on. And, And for me, just trying to grasp the uses for wheat as a commodity 
whether it's food grade or for livestock feed, um, it's interesting to see now what's going to have to substitute and take its place if everything ends up as tight as we think it's going to be. Yeah. And that's really the thing is, you know, year, every year it seems like we talk about a wheat production issue in some country or some area, but this year is unusual because we're talking about wheat production issues in lots of primary countries. Absolutely. That, uh, well, I'll tell you what we don't have a shortage of, and we don't have a shortage of inflation. So inflation is at a 40-year high, which caused the Fed yesterday to announce their most aggressive move in the last 22 years to try to counteract, counteract inflation. So the Federal Reserve is in charge of the Fed funds rate, which the Fed funds rate is uh, basically what banks charge each other to borrow overnight. So uh, if we need to shore up our balance sheet this evening, we can borrow from another bank that might have excess liquidity. And that rate is usually based off of this Fed funds rate. But Fed funds rate triggers uh, kind of a chain reaction effect as the whole market goes. So they raised it by half percent. That's the first time since 2000 that there's been more than a quarter percent move. Of course, we know in March, they moved it up a quarter, but now their target rate is that 1%. So it went from a half to 1%. And what that does, Delaney, is the cost of funds for every bank in the marketplace went up. So mm. almost every bank is adjusting this morning their operating note base rates. So if someone has a variable rate loan, whether it be a home equity line of credit, um, a unsecured credit card, a farm operating note, a business operating note, if it is tied to an adjustable rate, more than likely overnight, your rate just went up a half a percent. So this is coupled with also pulling back $9 trillion worth of bonds. So that timeline was not discussed in these articles, but uh, there is conversations of in the next 60 days, having a follow-up meeting for another potential half percent hike with their goal of trying to get that Fed funds rate up to two and a quarter to two and a half, which is considered neutral. So for them, we are at 1% now. Their goal is to get to two and a quarter to two and a half. So there could see a lot more pain, as stated in the headline of the next article, to consumers. Yeah, can I ask a quick question? Bars. Fire away. So you mentioned how quickly that impacts those variable interest rates. But what about if I were to go to the bank and try to borrow money? How quickly does that uptick in interest rate affect the interest rates that bankers are now going to use for buying a house or buying a property or buying a piece of farmland on fixed interest rates? Yep. So most of the fixed interest rates anticipated this rate hike coming. So it was already built into the adjustments made. So for example, the bank that I work at uh, about two weeks ago, an adjustment was made to our rates that were available in anticipation of this. So it's not a reactionary move. Okay. That makes sense. Um, however, with the discussions of another rate hike coming, you're going to start to see more precautionary movements uh, from financial institutions. So today, is it going to affect anything? No, I've got the same rates today that I did yesterday to offer, but it will continue to play into the uh, the aspects of where things look. I checked mortgage home mortgage rates and it looked like uh, on our rate sheet this morning, we were, uh, I want to caveat this is May 5th with the conversation today. Um, 
looking at over 5% on a 30-year home loan. And at this time last year, those would have been in the 3% range. So a substantial jump mm, Wow! for us on, on those sides of things. Guess I should have taken some people's advice to borrow as much money as I could before the interest rates <laughs> went up. Yeah, and I think farmers are probably in the same boat. Uh, DTN is reporting that more farmers have turned to banks this spring to help with the surging input costs. So that's where this inflation being at a 40-year high is kind of a double-edged sword. So according to the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, lenders show that the volume of non-real estate agriculture loans have increased sharply to a record number of operating loans that now are larger than $1 million. So uh, we've had a lot of conversations on our podcast, the Farm for Profit podcast with economists comparing uh, now the environment that we're in to the environment pre-80s. And there's there's an eerie number of similarities. And if we continue to see borrowing rates go up, that's another one of those factors that could make a recession impending a little bit dangerous. Yes, I saw those two headlines this morning as well. So I'm glad we've got those pulled up. I really like having an ag lender on the podcast now, Tanner, because I feel like there were always some of these questions that I'd had, but I didn't really have anyone to ask them to. Well, there you go. I don't have to know it all. I just have to know a little bit about a couple of things, right? That's right. Exactly. (laughs) Same with me, for sure. Well, Tanner, as we uh, kick things over here, before we chat markets, I wanted to bring this piece of news up to our listeners' attention because, you know, we mentioned the wheat side of things, but soybean and soybean oil have also really drastically been volatile the last couple of days. We saw soybean oil rally yesterday in excess of 200 points, which is quite a lot for a one-day trade as well as a soybean meal rally of more than $3 this morning, which is really keeping soybeans here in the green as of this morning in opening markets. In addition to that, we've seen some really bullish reactions from crude and uh, stock markets at the recent announcement that the Fed was raising interest rates by a half a percent. And so a lot of traders are watching that 1667 region in the July contract. There's a gap somewhere around the 1641 mark that we're going to pay close attention to as traders continue to trade this thing out today. But we've also seen on Monday, yesterday, yesterday, sorry, we also saw a sharp drop in interest, open interest for soybean meal and soybean oil. We're seeing a lot of long liquidation. So could mean a couple of different things. Could mean that folks are getting out of this because they see trouble ahead, or they're just trying to shore up positions as they're waiting this thing out for the long haul. So time will tell for sure. But um I'm I'm curious, Sainer, with that rise in interest rates, I know it's not a direct reflection of anything at the pump, but is there any sort of long-term impact that it could have on oil, gas prices, anything like that from a consumer spending standpoint? I would say so. I mean, it's an operating cost. If the interest that you're being charged on borrowings, whether it's on uh, operating funds or new endeavors for expansion, is going to drive up costs and those costs have to be passed along some way. I would say there's a lot of really intelligent CFOs out there that if there was an opportunity to lock in long-term fixed rates for assets or borrowings, they've probably already done that. So it should have minimal effect on large asset loans, probably more just on overnight and uh, operating borrowings. Got it. Okay. Thank you for that perspective again. 
yeah, staying kind of related to oil, we're going to talk ethanol. Ethanol outputs increased to three-week highs. I know that we had talked two weeks ago about a decline uh, in production, but output is back, kicking up their progress. They rose to an average of 969,000 barrels a day. That's up from the 963 that we reported on last week. However, inventories were continuing to decline. So therefore, demand is certainly out there, and that's what they're trying to produce against. It was interesting. There was an article that we did not report on earlier in this week about the potential future for ethanol as drivers commute less with higher prices at the pump and the uh, higher in influx or influence towards electric vehicles as to what the future of the ethanol market looks like. But for now, demand is still very strong uh, as we sit and, and run with this. The last piece that I've got, Delaney, to report on is, uh, as we're talking transportation here in the U.S., Russia continues to attack the infrastructure in Ukraine. So Ukraine's rail system has now become a big focus. There are 46 trains that are now delayed up to 11 hours because of damage from Russian strikes. And that 11 hours figure could extend based upon the severity of the damage that's been done. So particular in Ukraine's west, they're trying to get uh, supplies in from allies and significant delays are happening because of Russia's attack on infrastructure. Yeah, and infrastructure was a pretty big focal point of D.C. politics this week, more so obviously U.S. transportation. We talked a lot about shipping containers. We talked a lot about the U.S. railway systems and barge and lock and dam systems. So it's definitely one that a lot of legislators are paying close attention to, especially as they're very cognizant of the fact that we do have to produce more and get more exported out of the country this year due to the Russia-Ukraine situation. But another issue that a lot of legislators touched on this week, Tanner, was avian influenza. And I pressed Secretary Vilsack again during kind of our open media session with him about whether or not he thought avian influenza was going to get as bad this year as it had back in 2015. And if you think back to 2015, we were somewhere around 50 million birds in death loss. Well, here we are, May 5th, 2022, and we're sitting at about 37, last I checked, million birds that have deceased. Vilsack's comments, which hopefully we'll get to play later this week on the podcast, really were indicating that, in his opinion, because things are starting to heat up for the summer months, that should largely help, you know, calm the disease. But as you look at the news today, we're seeing lots of new cases reported day by day. So I don't really quite see, sometimes it felt like this week in Washington, there was a little bit of a disconnect between what legislators thought happened in agriculture. And in reality, it's like, well, we know that that's not necessarily the case. So that was kind of my general sentiment this week is there are definitely some legislators that know what's going on in rural America. We talked to Senator Thrun uh, yesterday, Senator Hoven yesterday. They're very in tune with North and South Dakota, I would say, and the ranching community. But there are others that really don't have that clear vision of what is going on and what is realistic to actually be able to implement. Well, it's good to get that distinction out in the open because I think it was a general assumption of a lot of the ag population right now. Uh, but it is really good to, like I said, finally get them to realize that there might be more that they need to be doing in their role. 
Yeah. So it's just, I don't know. There was a couple days this week where I just kind of left feeling very frustrated. Um, we can talk about that more when we play that session. And I, and I don't even know if we should Tanner. So to be honest, there was a session on <laughs> Tuesday afternoon. I was texting you about it. It was the Sierra club, the environmental working group, uh, the natural environmental defense council. And then one other, I can't remember off the top of my head, but basically groups that we usually associate as fighting against agriculture and the environmental working group gentleman talked out of both sides of his mouth. He was very frustrating said that agriculture was the largest contributor of greenhouse gas emissions, which we certainly know not to be the case, and was also, also, um, you know, mentioned that biodiesel and bio, the RFS was the biggest failure that we'd seen, but then in the same breath acknowledged that we needed to use that as a way to tackle climate change through using it as a liquid fuel. So it was just very frustrating that these people don't seem to really comprehend what they're saying. Right. I could definitely see that being difficult to sit in a conversation to where you have so much more perspective and information uh, and counteracting opinions with a very strong personality that isn't going to come right out and state that they're wrong or willingness to learn something else. Yeah. So it'll definitely make our listeners blood boil because it made my blood boil. I wanted to throw hands by the end of that session, but here we are. I'd probably get thrown in DC jail or something. Seeing Delaney throw hands would be uh, probably a pay-per-view event. That, that could be possible. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Delaney, what do we have in the markets today? What type of overnight action happened spurred out of this interest rate hikes in the news? Yeah, absolutely. We saw, I mean, corn really is the smallest player today just seems like there's maybe some low volatility or low trade going on this morning up about a penny across the board in both old and new crop contracts. Soybeans really are where we're seeing and wheat seeing things shine through with uh, question marks on the soybean oil and meal side of things, as well as the question mark of how much India, Russia, Ukraine, and the U S are going to produce from a wheat perspective. So soybeans and wheat are both up anywhere from, 10 to 25, 30 cents across the board. So certainly going to be interesting to see how those things follow through because I know earlier this week, they couldn't hold on to some of those gains that they'd made early in the trade session. So it will be important to see how things close up for today. And in the livestock markets, we're seeing some mixed trade this morning, live cattle and feeder cattle down across the board and lean hogs trading higher. So that's where we're at this morning, Tanner. All right, let's jump into our conversation of the day. Catching up with Corey Rosenbush, president and CEO of the Fertilizer Institute. Corey, thanks for joining me today. There are certainly no shortage of topics to talk about when you look at the fertilizer space right now. We are very popular these days. Uh, Fertilizer is definitely the hot topic you wake up. Sunday morning news shows are now talking about the fertilizer market. In some ways, it's it's exciting that people understand how important fertilizers are to feeding the world. I mean, half of the world's population on this planet are here because of fertilizers. Yeah, I have to admit, before the fertilizer supply chain issues, I didn't pay quite as much attention to it, but I, I do regularly tune into it now. So I think it's 
brought a new light to the fertilizer market. Well, you know, I'm new to TFI. I started about two years ago, two years ago, right in the middle of the pandemic. But I grew up around agriculture, big in FFA. My dad was an ag teacher. So this was a bit of a homecoming to ag for me. And somebody was asking me last summer, they said, so how are things going? And I said, man, this Belarusian uh, airline hijacking has really caused problems. And they looked at me and they said, what does that have to do with fertilizer? We thought you went to the Fertilizer Institute. Well, who knew that Belarus, uh, Belarus's largest source of tax revenue are their potash fertilizers? And so when that happened, sanctions went down hard on Lukashenko. 20% of the global potash supply basically got removed from the marketplace. So we are at the center of the geopolitical discussion right now. Absolutely. And it seems like daily we have some sort of update on fertilizer prices, largely tied to that geopolitical issue. But when you look at the current fertilizer landscape right now, for those of our listeners that are maybe somewhat familiar with the Russia-Ukraine production, you know, they're a large player in the fertilizer space. But what type of fertilizer are they producing and in what regions are being affected? Yeah, fantastic question. So uh, Russia is also just adding to uh, this black swan event that we hear about. Matter of fact, I've evolved it from being a black swan event to pterodactyl status. It has gotten that vicious. And every week there's something new. And, and you know, we our hearts go out to everything, everyone in Ukraine. I spent some time over there with farmers. And I can just tell you the land there is so rich. It really does remind me of, you know, mid-America, heartland of America. And, and the farmers work so hard. Russia is a huge producer of fertilizer, all three, N, P, and K. And so I think 20% of the global potash supply comes from Russia. Uh, they produce about or export about 18% of urea uh, to the global market. And so as, country, as you know, countries are looking at sanctions uh, against Russia, I don't think we've begun to feel the impact yet of what this is going to mean from terms of its fallout. But Canada, the United States, or sorry, UK, uh, Europe have all basically sanctioned the major uh, fertilizer oligarchs. So, you know, some of the top Russian oligarchs are fertilizer company owners. And so that's going to have a big impact as product moves across the globe. Now, in the United States, we have not taken that measure yet. It's one of those delicate balancing acts because uh, we, we don't want to do things that are going to make it even harder for the American farmer. Uh, as a matter of fact, fertilizer has been exempted from those uh, from those sanctions. So you've got medicine, you've got food, and you got fertilizer, and that's kind of where we now stack up as we engage in that conversation. But a lot of that product will, from Russia moves to Brazil, to Africa, and I I'm confident. Excuse me, the American farmer will find a way to get its fertilizer. I think people think about food security though, and how will an African farmer ensure that they're getting uh, their fertilizer? Uh, I was told recently that about a third of all fertilizer supply in Africa go to subsistence farmers. So farmers that are growing food so that their families can eat. And when we start removing that supply, I do think we've got some humanitarian food security issues ahead. You hate to use the F word, and I mean the word famine. <laughs> But that certainly is an issue that has become increasingly relevant, I think, to today's discussion and is one we have on the podcast a lot is just, you know, it's not just the United States. It's not just Russia and Ukraine. Brazil is dealing with the same issue. Like you said, African farmers are dealing with the same issue. So it's interesting to see how that 
landscape shifts, but what is your forecast for how things play out here? Yeah, it's difficult to predict. I think we're at a stage now where we're trying to collect the data just to to see what we can forecast in the future and what it's going to mean for global food production, but it's on everyone's radar right now. Uh, 90% of fertilizer is used outside of the United States. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, uh, the market is a, uh, the fertilizer market truly is a global market. And we, I think we'll see some of those supply chains shift, uh, particularly countries that may work, that may have been highly reliant on Russian fertilizer, uh, may have to look elsewhere. I think the real interesting thing to watch as this plays out is China. So last, uh, last year, um, China, that is the world's largest producer of phosphate, 40% of the phosphates in the world, uh, they produce a third of our nitrogen in the world, blocked all of their fertilizer exports. So none of that product was leaving China. They're a huge supplier of India, which just so happens to be the largest uh, buyer of fertilizer. They have a central government procurement process, so their federal government will buy uh, all of that and then subsidize it for Indian farmers. So you took that out of the market, and you really saw the supply chain shift. Watch what happens with China. They said June they're going to be making a decision on whether they're going to allow exports or not. But, you know, I think you'll really start to see a lot of those supply chain shift and, and products moving elsewhere, especially trying to mitigate what's going on with Russian products. But if you think back, this issue was sparked before the Russia-Ukraine situation. I mean, you think about events like Hurricane Ida when the southern portion of the United States drastically had to shut down for a extended period of time and a lot of fertilizer you know is produced down there as well so it's there were lots of events leading up to this it was a chain of black swan events I, I think it's safe to say but from a producer standpoint you know they're looking at this and thinking for those that didn't book ahead of time we're thinking probably a year or so ago I'll wait because those prices have to come down at some point here we are they've done the opposite and they might be thinking that again for spring application. Hopefully they've got that in the rear view window now. But as you look ahead to fall application or even walking in spring of 23, when are we going to start to see this thing come back down? Well, that's a great question. And because I have a lot of publicly traded companies, I, I try not to make forward looking statements. But I'll tell you what I hear and what I've heard from a lot of our uh, a lot of our member companies is that they're they're seeing the fundamentals of this current market to be uh, a long a longer term environment a uh, longer term market uh, situation. So unlike 2008 and 2009, which I think a lot of people think about when we saw a very similar run up in prices, it immediately crashed months later. I don't think we can expect that, and I know a lot of farmers were thinking that and thinking back to 2008 9, and so were a lot of our. Uh, distributors. And so no one wanted to take that risk. No one wanted to build up supply for fear of that crash. I think it's a completely different time, completely different market environment. Global economics are in a completely different place as well. So at least what I'm hearing is that this this will be a trend uh, that we'll see, you know, at least into 2023. Uh, it's hard to predict uh, predict beyond that. Two quick things about planning then. So one, I really encourage farmers to talk to their ag retailer, really communicate with them what their intentions are. And I think we just have to, to be really clear and understand what's being communicated. So I was at a farm event out in central Illinois a few months ago, and they were really concerned about 
not having supply. And as they went into the conversation, they said in for, for purposes of tax planning, they talked to their retailer. They were trying to get a price, and the retailer wouldn't give them a price. Well, it wasn't because there wasn't supply available, which is what they thought. It was more so because of the volatility. They just weren't in a position to do it. And so really that communication line is going to be so important. I think everyone's feeling okay about the spring right now. Of course, weather has had a huge impact, especially in the Midwest. Uh, we have seen a little bit of our volumes be down. It's hard to predict whether that's weather-related. Is that, you know, demand destruction? Um, is that you know, people shifting from corn to beans, really hard to tell because of all the factors going into. But for the most part, other than kind of typical supply chain disruptions that we see in a just-in-time commodity, uh, I think we're going to be fine for the spring. So now really is the time. What's that summer fill going to look like? What's fall application going to look like? And what's spring going to look like in 2023? And with that landscape in mind that we won't probably see prices come back down anytime soon, final question for you. Do you think that the administration will step in because fertilizer is so closely tied to food security? Well, that's a really good question, and probably uh, I'm sure a lot of other people have specific uh, opinions on this. I will say that the administration is very engaged with the broader agricultural community on this conversation. Uh, I won't get into direct farm payments or, or some of those topics that are better answered by some of my colleagues, but especially from a food aid perspective, uh, ensuring that all of the food aid programs are available to help with uh, hunger and, uh, you know, overseas uh, aid uh, to, to farmers uh, are definitely ways that the administration is currently engaging. From a fertilizer perspective, we've been, we've been you know, very pleased that they're looking at what can be done to bolster domestic production. We're always going to have to rely on imported supply because, Frankly speaking, we don't have the potash reserves in this country or the potash reserves that other countries have. But we do want to make sure the domestic production we do have is strong. So what are the regulations that are blocking growth? So permitting. Uh, We just saw uh, revisions to some of the NEPA, the environmental uh, permitting rules, uh, get rolled back three decades, which is going to make it harder for companies to expand production and ensure that the American farmer has fertilizer supply here domestically. So it's complicated because it's one step forward, two steps back sometime, but it's definitely on the administration's agenda and we're providing as many solutions as possible. And it sounds like there are no shortage of issues that you will be watching here in the in the coming year or so, but Corey, thank you so much for joining today. I appreciate it. Oh, uh, thank you, my pleasure. Well, Tanner, certainly appreciate Corey joining us from the Fertilizer Institute. It was really interesting to get to chat with him this week in D.C. And you can just tell he's very passionate about fertilizer and the industry. And honestly, I love it when those type of policymakers, you know, figurehead type of people at the top of these organizations, national organizations, are just really enthused and fired up about talking about their whatever industry or topic. I think that really, really plays well in interviews. Yeah, I I would say anybody who's passionate makes an interview better. And uh, that's why I like working right alongside you, Delaney, and your passion for sharing the news on Ag News Daily. Thank you. That was probably the closest (laughs) thing to a compliment I've ever gotten from you. I almost choked halfway through that. 
Thanks. <laughs> uh-huh. No. What do you say, Delaney? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. 